American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Welcome to another episode of American, American Timelines. Time I'm, I'm Amy, Amy and that's Joe. Joe. No. I'm Amy. No, that's Joe. Quit playing jokes. You're yeah. Amy, and I'm Joe. And today we are Sans guest. Also, we're completely nude. No, we're not. We're in our garage where we record in my garage studio <laughs> in Waxhaw, North Carolina, and we are completely nude, covered in barbecue sauce. What did you do to this microphone? Oh There's well, shit I, all over this microphone. Well, what do you think I did with it? Oh, <laughs> whatever you're thinking, it's worse. All right. Anyway, we are going to talk about 1952 today. That is right. We're talking about 1952 here on American Timeline. don't have a guest. History for jerks. You already said that. We don't have a guest. You know, you just, you just ignored naked. me, so I was repeating myself. I didn't ignore you. Yeah, you did. You said we're sans guests, and I said, and we're nude. I know. So I anyway. I added. I added. I heightened. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Didn't ignore. I heightened. And we're going to talk about August. Yeah, we're August 1952. Yeah, this is the podcast where we go. Month by month, year by year. Everybody knows who. Everybody knows. Okay. What if there's a new listener and they start with the most recent one? They don't know what we do. We go month by month, year by year, and we tell the bullshit that happened. We talk about stuff in America that happened. We talk about all the things. We talk about all the things. Not everything, but just we touch on things. Lots of the things. Amy usually picks a grisly murder or a a UFO or something Something, strange. Something like that. Take a deep dive. Something hinky. It's a kind of a history podcast. It's kind of a true crime podcast. Yeah, all right. It's let's kind start. of a sexy podcast. Stop it. Let's start. All right. We're going to start. So uh, we're going to start in August of 1952. Yeah. And I have to apologize again because this, I don't know if I just half-assed. It was rough, though. The, um, this spring was rough for us. Like, yeah. Like uh, trying to get the kid through school and a COVID and a yeah, pandemic everybody, and all this Everybody shit. lived through it. Everybody, everybody knows. So, uh, I didn't do some of the things I usually do when we started a new year. So when we started of 1952, I I don't think I even did the whole, like, these are some things that happened in the year, but I don't have dates for them. Oh, I so thought I you did. I don't think I did that. I think I just started in January. Okay. Remember, because your mom was there, we just started. Okay. So I'm going to sprinkle them in the next few episodes. Okay. Uh, as they come, most of the things... I looked through and I found some dates, but some of them, rather than just put them all now, I'll do some now, some later. But uh, the big thing I usually do every year that I totally forgot that I miss is I look at weirduniverse.net. Yeah. You haven't been looking at that? Uh, Not for this year. I forgot. I got got lost. So I missed a bunch of things. So so I didn't miss a ton of things, but I missed two things for April 1952. Okay, let's hear them. Back up and add those in, and then we'll go back to August. Um (laughs) <laughs> well, the first thing wasn't in America, and you're going to hate this, but April 1952, yeah. a mouse took a photo of its own death. What? Yes. Inspired by a love of photography and a hate of mice, a London photographer wired a mousetrap, a London photographer, sorry, I didn't articulate that. He wired a mousetrap to a camera so that when a mouse triggered the trap mechanism, it simultaneously activated the camera shutter. 
The oh resulting my. photo appeared in papers around the world. Ew. You can look that online. It actually the the shot doesn't. It looks like it hasn't like it hasn't got it yet. It so it's a, it must yet. be about to. So, oh um, man, yeah. Okay. So that was a thing. It's kind of weird. All right. And then, and also in April 1952, this is my favorite. Uh, uh, this is called Encounter with a Stranger on WeirdUniverse.net, which you could get lost on WeirdUniverse.net, by the way, if you yeah. just have some time to kill. Um, in April of 1952, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Theodore Murphy complained to police that a man he did not know appeared at his apartment door, punched him in the face twice, and departed saying, you know who I am. What? <laughs> yeah. yeah that's, <laughs> that's all that happened? That's all that happened. Oh, it's yeah. pretty funny. Some guy punched him in the face twice. You know he thought that was somebody else. You know who I am and then walked out. I love it. Yeah, a guy got punched in the face twice by a stranger. All and right. It was recorded for all of history. Yep. Um, and then I'll bring us to August. Okay, we're going to start out August 1st, okay. 1952. Did you know what? that there is a law mm-hmm. relating to hypnosis in Great Brit- Britain? No. It was it came from the Hip, Hypnotism Act of 1952. Yeah. It was introduced on uh, August 1st is when it went uh in effect, but it was introduced in response to media hysteria after a young lady sued American hypnotist Ralph Slater, asserting mm-hmm. that she had suffered mental damage as a result of Slater's show. Oh. Even though the case was thrown out, Various misinformed bodies attempted to use the situation to repress stage hypnosis, resulting in the current legislation. So there's legislation against stage hypnosis now? Uh, I think this is this is legislation saying you're allowed to because people are trying to ban it. And oh, like, I see. No, you can't. <laughs> so, oh, okay. Uh, it's the Hypnotism Act of 1952. But uh, So I looked into this event like what caused this lady upset so russian-born american ralph slater quickly became the most famous hypnotist in the uk according to medium.com slater was a short sharp suited figure with slick black hair and a fashionably thin mustache (laughs) he debuted in london like john waters yeah john waters that's what i'm picturing a a hypnotist in 1950 or yeah He debuted in London in 1948 as a world's fastest hypnotist. He only had to put his hand on your head, and you would fall instantly asleep. Once in a hypnotic state, volunteers would brush imaginary ants off their clothes or play non-existent musical instruments or cry like babies, depending on what he told them to do. Hypnotized them to do. Yeah, that is not something I would want to do for in on a stage. Get on stage and do that, and God knows what they tell you to do in front of everybody and yeah. act like a who knows what. Get Balk your rooms like a chicken out, whatever. Or whatever. Well, yeah. uh, we just booked for the Queen City Comedy Experience coming up this fall yeah. in Charlotte. Uh, we booked Colin Mockery's Hyprov, Hiprov, I guess is how you would say it, where it's <laughs> he does, I think, is it's him and a, it's him, Colin Mockery from Whose Line Is It Anyway? You know, that yeah. guy, he's a famous guy. Him and a hypnotist come and they do an improv show, but they they pull audience members out of the audience and hypnotize them, and they do improv with them. He does improv really? with the audience members, hmm. uh, which I guess is goofy and different, but so we'll see how that goes. Let's see but, how that works out. Um, but yeah, so he, uh, Slater also conduct, conducted an experiment in self-hypnosis in which he persuaded volunteers to run a lit match below their own outstretched hand Mm. Rendered impervious to pain, volunteers didn't feel the heat on their sooty fingers. 
Ooh. Slater uh, believed self-hypnosis could be used by the military to help to better endure the rigors of war. Um, I don't know. Isn't hypnosis a bunch of bullshit, though? I don't know. I think. I think it. I think, it, think a it's lot been of junk. I think it's been proven to be junk. I don't know if it's proven because I think if if they can prove you not to feel heat, don't you think that some of our senses are just us being fooled, like mind over matter kind of thing? Maybe mind over matter with your like if you. It's your nerve endings that feel it. Like you shouldn't. It's your nerves telling your brain there's danger. You shouldn't really feel burning. Yeah. Yeah. Am I right? Well, in March 1954, newspapers revealed that Ralph Slater was being sued for damages by this young woman, and he was sued by 23-year-old Diana Rains Bath. She had volunteered for one of Slater's performances several years earlier mm-hmm. at the Brighton Hippodrome. Slater, in the name of entertainment, had made her cry on stage, one of his signature stunts. Mm-hmm. And he used he used uh, post-hypnotic commands, this time making Rainsbath shout peanuts every time Slater stamped his foot. What seemed fun in the theater turned to misery at home when the woman became subject to fits of depression and weeping. And the case came to court. Dr. Van Pelt, president of the British Society of Medical Hypnotists, mm-hmm. which is a thing, and who had treated the woman for depression, acted as a prosecution witness, alleging that her participation participation in Slater's show led directly to her illness. Uh, Slater defended himself and mm-hmm. spoke to the benefits of hypnosis. He was actually a staunch promoter of its therapeutic value. He claimed he cured a cripple and had someone else throw away their spectacles after attending his shows. He said that none of the 25,000-plus people he had hypnotized over the years, 25,000-plus people, had ever displayed any adverse effects. Anyway, the trial lasted three days, but it took only an hour for the jury to decide that the young woman's condition was a result of Slater's performance. Oh, was. They awarded her $1,000 in damages. Oh, that's not very much, but I guess it's 1952. In 1952, $1,000 is equal to $400 billion. No. Gazillion dollars. Come on now. I don't know what it is equal to, but... Uh, but later there was an appeal, and the damages, not the charge, were rescinded. But by this time, Slater's bookings were drying up. His work permit wasn't renewed, and he was forced to leave the country and return to the U.S., where he tried to rebuild his career as a stage hypnotist. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then there he. There you go. He probably was great shame. after that. I know. I think he wasn't great. I think his career was ruined. Was it? And you know what? Americans it's a disgrace. Will, but Americans will do that. Americans will, they don't care. Americans love stage hypnosis, probably. Yeah, they probably did back then. It's a big thing. Do you think if I walked around our neighborhood and just said, hey, anybody want to get hypnotized on stage? No. People would say yes. What's next? Oh, that brings us to August 4th. Wait a minute. Monday, August 4th. I have August 3rd. I mean, Sunday, August 3rd, 1952. Yes. And my wonderful buxom blonde wife has... Yes. A story to share. I'm going to tell the tale of Ruby McCullum. Oh, okay. Ruby McCullum, I am not familiar. Please shed some light on this. And my source was an article from Timeline.com by Nina Renata Aaron. Oh, Nina Renata Aaron, Timeline.com. Not to be confused with American Timelines. Exactly. And also the Wikipedia I got him down a little rabbit hole with this one. So, so if you look at the bottom of every Wikipedia page, there are some references there. That right. You could always, those, those could be mentioned. But 
We don't need to right now. I guess you don't have to. Maybe you have to. I don't know. All I don't right. Know jury's out. <clears throat> On the quiet Sunday morning of August 3rd, 1952, yep. Ruby McCollum, who was the richest black woman in the town of Live Oak, Florida. Oh, okay. The richest black woman in the town of Live Oak, Florida. This is going to be a black history episode yeah. because I have a cool black okay. history thing, too. She put two of her children in the backseat of her blue Chrysler. Okay. She then drove to the office of Clifford Leroy Adams, a prominent white doctor and state senator-elect. Okay. She parked, walked in the colored entrance, uh-huh. and through the office waiting room. She pulled a thirty-eight caliber pistol from her pocketbook Whoa. and shot the doctor dead. Whoa! Damn! White townspeople would say that McCollum was trying to dodge a medical bill. Oh. But Just shoot the doctor. That's a good way to McCollum go. would claim that she'd been sexually victimized by the doctor for years and forced to bear his child. Oh, man. The, I believe her already. The murder and the national attention garnered by the subsequent trial brought to light the open secret of rape in the South oh. and dredged up many other issues the town of Live Oak had long kept buried. Oh, no. Halfway between Tallahassee and Jacksonville is where Live Oak is. Okay. Real sleepy, serene place. I love sleepy, serene places, but not ones with rape in them. Well, straight-laced, very segregated. It was the kind of place that was pleasant for white families and much less friendly to others. As historian Carol Herring says in the 2012 documentary, The Other Side of Silence, The Untold Story of Ruby McCollum, this part of North Florida is the deepest of the Deep South. And then Rodney Hurst, who's an author and civil rights activist, corroborates that for non-whites, Live Oak was not a town you wanted to travel in or through, and you didn't want to spend the night there. Uh, Eight years before Ruby McCollum turned a gun on Clifford Adams, a 15-year-old named Willie James Howard was lynched for sending a Christmas card to a white girl. The girl was the daughter of a state legislator who came for the boy personally and may have been the one to kill him. Jeez. So by all accounts, the town all but screeched to a halt after Ruby McCollum pulled the trigger that August day. You know what? I bet, you know, even though we know it's not going to end well for her, I bet it felt good just that moment yeah. to shoot that motherfucker. Yep. And the the um, newspaper headline said, Dr. Adams slain by Negress. Oh, gosh. I know. Man, fuck. I know. Fuck history, man. Well. Sorry. I know. It's true. It's just. People speculated about McCollum's motives. Yeah. There were rumors that she and Adams were lovers, and black residents feared reprisals by the KKK. Oh, I'll bet. As C. Arthur Ellis and Leslie E. Ellis write in The Trial of Ruby McCollum, Live Oak residents gathered at beauty shops and lunch counters the following day to express their shock and grief over the sudden death of the kind, quote, poor man's doctor. But public lamentations soon gave way to whispers about Adam's darker side. Okay. Was Adams involved in illegal business with McCollum and her husband? Might what? he have owed her money? Did Adams' rumored habit of overprescribing morphine contribute to the McCollum's state of mind that oh, day? Oh, yikes. So newspapers from all over the country reported on the sensational trial. Really? The Pittsburgh Courier, which was one of the most widely distributed black newspapers in the country. Oh. At the height of its popularity, as many as 14 editions circulated nationally. Pittsburgh Courier. Okay, that's They sent novelist and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston. You heard of her? Zora Neale Hurston? Y'all? No, I haven't. Oh, you haven't? I should have, huh? You should have, yeah. Um, I'm a bad person. I'll go look They her sent up. her to cover the trial. Tell me about her, like bio like what school She's, did she go to who did she go to well school i don't with? i don't have where did she grow up and what did her parents do for a living hold on no, i'm just kidding you don't have to do all that okay i was, just I was gonna kidding say. sorry all right that's stupid <clears throat> shit i do so they she they, she's there covering the trial okay so she's a she's a famous african-american novelist journalist. oh novelist yeah and anthropologist and yeah so the judge 
who was a pallbearer at the doctor's funeral. Oh, boy. You know, that's a thankless job, being a pallbearer. Well, think I mean, about I'm that, not, though. He's uh, yeah, the judge no, in this yeah, trial, know, and he's pallbearer yeah. of the, no, I'm the not guy to, who was shot. I'm not trying to say anything good about him, but I was a pallbearer one time, and you my back, back. I think it hurt my back forever. Yeah, probably did. And All right, was, we don't uh, want to know. My cousin's other grandma. Moving on. Looked like Mrs. Doubtfire in, Stop the, it. in the coffin. All right. And she was a little too heavy for me. The judge imposed a gag order on McCollum's, and it prohibited her from giving interviews. And furthermore, the press was barred from the courtroom. Yeah. But Hurston, Zora Neale Hurston, sat daily yeah. in the segregated balcony, scribbling the notes that became the life story of Ruby McCollum, a multi-installment report. Good. In it, she wrote with nuance about not only the testimonies, but the underpinnings of racial prejudice that warped the entire proceeding. Yep. I'm so sure. Ruby was married to an industrious man named Sam McCollum, okay. who, along with his brother Buck, ran a highly profitable gambling ring. Okay. The yeah, f- yeah. Like the the... Policy, they call them the, the. And they also sold liquor and grew tobacco on a nearby farm and owned a few juke joints. It's weird that you have, that's crazy how much this, these are, pol- so he was, her husband was a policy king, is what they call Oh, okay. They, um, the couple was known by nearly everyone in town. They lived in a two-story house where they raised four children, one of whom was studying at UCLA at the time of the murder. Really? So they were pretty well off for, for black people that's hard at to this do time. at this time and for him to go to ucla where but he's probably just ruby had testified during her trial that the youngest loretta was the child not of her husband but of dr adams there was who said that ruby did oh ruby said it was the yeah do- oh the do- oh, that's saying, right. you said the doctor she's saying that the forced child her to have the baby yeah and she baby. claimed the doctor had raped and assaulted her for years, Jeez, forced sure he her to bear his child, asshole. and threatened to kill her if she didn't bear him another. Jeez. Hurston wrote that the judge repeatedly shut down efforts by Frank Cannon, who was McCollum's but, lawyer, to ask her for details about the violence. Did he? Did she have to keep the kids and raise them? Yeah. Or did he take them? No. Why would he want her to do that? Well, I'll get to it. Okay. Ruby was allowed to describe how about 1948... During an extended absence of her husband, she had in her home submitted to the doctor, Hurston wrote. She was allowed to state that her youngest child was his, yet 38 times Frank Cannon attempted to proceed from this point. 38 times he attempted to create the opportunity for Ruby to tell her whole story and thus explain what were her motives. 38 times the state objected, and 38 times Judge Adams sustained these objections. So they just wouldn't let her talk? Nope. That's fucking... It seemed Aggravated. clear. Jesus. It seemed clear to many that Loretta was Dr. Adams' daughter, but that meant to jurors that the wealthy woman and the 44-year-old 270-pound doctor were simply lovers. In the documentary Gross. You Belong to Me: Sex, Race, and Murder in the South, Tamika Bradley Hobbs, who's a professor of history at Florida Memorial University, yeah. says Loretta looked a lot like her father. So just visually Poor it was thing. very difficult for anyone to escape or deny that this was Doc Adams' child. Yeah. Adams' secretary Thelma Curry said that McCollum was a frequent visitor to the doctor's office. And In a 1960 interview with Jet Magazine, McCollum told an interviewer that the morning Dr. Adams delivered Loretta, he'd called her husband Sam into the bedroom and told him, Sam, I love all my children, N-words as well as whites, and Uh, this is my baby. I want you to treat it right and see that it gets proper care. Wow. That would be hard for him. The prosecution alleged that McCollum was haggling over a $116 medical bill the morning she shot and killed Adams. And indeed, Thelma Curry testified she had heard the two discussing money. Well, he probably did. He probably even billed her for all that shit, too, after raping her. Yeah, he did. Uh. 
But the focus on the payment was also a means of diverting attention away from the charge of sexual violence. According to Hurston, it was like a chant. The medical bill as a motive for the slaying was ever insisted upon and stressed. There was this quick and stubborn insistence that the medical bill, and that alone, could have been the cause of the murder. It was obviously a posture, but a posture posed in granite. Of course, posture a man like posed in granite. Is what Zora Neale Hurston's right? Yeah, that's good. Of course, a man like Clifford Adams, white, elected to public office, celebrated in his community, and gunned down in the prime of his life, was about as sympathetic as a character could be in the 1950s Deep South, especially to jurors that were a lot like him. Yeah, of course. But the charge that Adams had raped McCollum and its repetition throughout the trial made the case bigger than one man's reputation, bigger than any lone woman carrying out a solitary act of insanity or revenge. McCollum's testimony, reportedly the first time in history that a black woman accused a white man of sexual assault in open court, served as a broader indictment of what's called paramour rights. I've heard. Well, I was recently reading. This about is the it. widespread practice among white men of having sexual relationships with black women by force or coercion, and it happened. And I went down a whole rabbit hole about this. Uh-huh. It happened. Just it was rampant somebody. in the South. Yeah, it happened all the time, <sighs> and um, they were never mentioned in polite company, but they became so normalized as to be nearly invisible that this was going on all around the South. The proliferation of mixed-race children in the South was the result of such encounters. But like so many ugly realities born of slavery, it was simply too fraught, too painful, or too uncomfortable to acknowledge. And needless to say, the men involved had no interest in publicity. And this is from the trial. Um, This is what... um, this is from what something Ruby was talking about in the trial. Okay. This is during her description as far as she could get about what happened. Okay. He, talking about Doc Adams, told me to get on the table. I told him, well, can I wait until another time? And he said, no. He said, I want you to get up there now. I said, well, maybe I can get up there today. He said, yes, you can get up there today. Then I told him why, and he ran into me and grabbed me and started pounding me, and he began hitting on me and beating on me with his fist. Ugh. And he told me that I don't ever intend to do anything else he asked me to do, and I told him I'd, I'd do whatever I can when I can. And he continued hitting me, and then he turned around and grabbed the gun and stuck it in my stomach, and I pulled it away from him, and he snatched it back, and I grabbed it again, and the gun went off, and it went off again. And when he fell, and it went off again, and he makes out of the room and went and stood up in the door that entered into this room where the chairs are. He stood there a while, and gradually he went down to the floor, and he laid there flat out. He laid something like that. Anyway, when I started out by him, he grabbed the gun out of my hand. When he grabbed the gun out of my hand, I asked him to give me that gun, please, and he wouldn't give it back to me right then. After a while, I asked him for it again, and I caught his arm that way, and I don't know anything else that happened. So then so she, she, it was his gun, though, right? Yeah. Can't they prove that? I mean. Yeah, I guess. I mean, they should have proved that right away. Like, why would she? Because at the beginning, you made it sound like she walked in and with shot a gun him, and shot with him. With a gun and shot him. But I think it was his. So Hurston, Zora, uh, Zora Neale Hurston. Of course, they just plant evidence and all that. So had written about this before. Okay. In the capacity of anthropologist, she'd spent time in the 1930s in the turpentine camps of North Florida okay. and documented there the practice of white men subjugate, subjecting black women to sexual relationships. Uh-huh. Coin, and then she coined the phrase paramour rights. Okay. So it was with the life experience of a southern black woman and a particularly keen ethnographic eye that she took in the McCollum trial. That expertise enabled her to painstakingly report on not just the details but the stakes of the trial. 
In pulling the trigger that day, Ruby McCollum exposed the seedy underbelly of pastoral live oak, including gambling, prostitution, illegal liquor sales, and the cops and officials who were paid off in cash to keep their mouths shut, as well as the existence of relationships, sexual and otherwise, that crossed the color line. She also surfaced a dark truth about white men, though they would continue to lay claim to the bodies of black women with relative impunity in many cases. Historians mark the trial as a turning point in the national consciousness. Even if the legal system or the culture at large were slow to catch up, it was a bell that couldn't be unrung. As for McCollum, the jury of white men sentencing her to death by the sentenced her to death by the electric chair at the trial's end in 1953. She escaped that fate when her case was appealed and overturned on a technicality by the state Supreme Court. When it was brought before the court again in 1954, McCollum was deemed mentally incompetent to stand trial. She was sent to the notorious Florida State Mental Hospital in Chattahoochee, where she resided until 1974, when her lawyer was able to arrange for her release. Really? She was interviewed in 1980. She had no recollection of the shooting or its aftermath, which aroused suspicion that she'd been subjected to electroshock therapy while committed. She died in 1992. Oh, my gosh. She lived a long time. And that's the story of Ruby McCoy. Yeah, that's terrible. And that's the thing. It's like, it's just like, Week after week, episode after episode, we just like it's just we're, we're just constantly reminded about what the yeah. true history and this isn't like this isn't history we have to dig very far to get. You know what I mean? Right. Like everybody talks about the teaching. What is it? The controversy now teaching critical like, race, critical theory. race theory and how it's like, oh, you're yeah, making because up people these don't know what that is. They don't know. It just it sounds scary. and They make it sound scary yeah, and wrong. Right. And in the bottom line is. This this white angelic world is is crashing down. That's right. It's like the, well, the because truth it's a, is it's, out it's there. a lie. Yeah, and the and the and everybody, all these white people have been raised as this is the greatest country in the world. This is yep. a wonderful world. You have a you take the world by the horns, and this is and everything. the good old days. Nineteen yeah. fifties were the good old days. Everything was wonderful. And it's sweet, and America is the best country. And it's if you came here to listen for that, it, I'm sorry. Yeah, we, we can't, don't do that. Can't um, do it. We're telling the truth, and and. And like I said, this isn't stuff that's hard to find. This is out there. It's everywhere. It's not like, it's not like we're making it up or we're like, well, you know, and just putting. Let me just thing. can I just yeah say really quick yeah. one thing to clear this up. Critical race theory is not about teaching children that they are racist. Right. Okay. Critical race theory. All it is saying is that racism is systemic in this country, which means that in the systems that make this country function. Right. There is inherent racism, and it's and that is a fact, right? right? You you know, black people have less ability to generate their own generational wealth because um, you know they've been prevented from owning land, and that which is the biggest contributor to generational wealth. And that's the biggest thing. And they just split up all the land and didn't give. They didn't give them, them any. Well, and they redlining and all of that stuff, and then they prevent them from voting, and then they, you know, it's like. They can't. Well, we all know when you black know, my, people were freed. My dear it, friend, it wasn't free. Well, my dear friend, right now, trying to get a job. Yeah. And she, um, she's and she's black, and she said, "I, I can only, bl-, you know, she's got her hair done blonde, and she yeah. said I can only go. It's so blonde because oh, yeah. I said, are you, you know, are you waiting to hear about your the job?' And she said, "Well, I can only go so blonde." And I oh, thought, yeah. God, it's true. I had a friend at work, same thing. He was looking for work, and I was like been applying places like yeah all kinds of places but i'm the wrong color yeah that's just what he said you know and it's true and it's what it 
and people don't see that. And right. then they and they like people get so scared by saying the the sentence this is a racist country. I don't believe this is a racist country. This isn't a racist. And people believe if they're not racist, a lot I think that's the big problem is the people who aren't racist right are so shocked by hearing that. Right. And they're so appalled and they don't they just they just shut down and want to go away and don't want to talk about it because they might you might not be racist. You might have a black friend or black people, you know, may not outwardly do things, but but it but if you are not a complete ally, but it's not and do all you can to help change the system, right? But it's, and it's not it's not j- a personal thing. No, you know, it's not isn't. about that. It is about the system, right? So whether you're racist or not, you have to admit that systemically, everything is against people of color right. in this country, yeah. and it has been, color, yeah. and it's. And ever since slavery, it has been. Right. And I just think the solution, we've, everybody just wants the solution. Because everybody just wants to fix it real quick. How can I just fix it and then go on, go back to my life? Well, you have to have dialogues you about have, it. Well, yeah. And you have. it's just, it's no longer okay to just be not racist. You can't just not be racist. You have to be actively anti-racist, anti-racist which That's is hard. Right. It is. It's hard work and it's hard to do. Yeah. I've for a long time just sailed on the fact that, oh, I know I'm not racist, so I'm good and I'll just... But you are yeah, being racist you. by by perpetuating the system oh, yeah, just, of white yeah, supremacy, benefiting from it, and of course, yeah, That's, I have a lot yeah. of white privilege. So, yeah. So, and for years, I was just like, "Hey, hey, all about you guys. Go for it. Get your freedom." But you know, I never really did anything. But now I'm trying to do things. Yeah, me too. But that's another thing. But that's yeah. That's not what we're yeah. talking about. But we're going to talk a lot more about this. So if you don't like that you might as well turn and you're it off. following us, then sorry. That's just we strongly believe in this. So we're going to keep going. And it's history. Uh, it's not all this. Sometimes there's fun, goofy shit like what was on TV uh, during all this. But um, Or like that. What was that story you said earlier? I oh, forgot it. Uh, the, the, uh, the guy getting punched in the face twice? Yeah. Or the hypnotism thing. Okay, getting punched in the face twice. So this next, I really only have one big long story. Okay. Before we launch into all the birthdays. No, what? We're not launching into all the birthdays. I'm just kidding. I'm just turning this. I don't. I'm hoping the sound doesn't bother anyone too much, but I had to turn the fan on because we're in North Carolina. We are in the South, and it is hot as balls already. So. Yep, it sure is. Sure, hot as balls, sacks. I'm gonna have to get an air conditioner for the garage. But anyway, so I have this cool story. I'm gonna hopefully tell it as cool as you tell stories. All right. But it, it's kind of a parallel to that because on Monday, August 4th, at around 10 p.m. on August 4th, 1952, dressed in a three-piece suit and hat, Theodore Teddy Rowe creeped down South Michigan Avenue in Chicago as he was unlocking his car on the street outside his apartment. A voice called, Rowe! He turned around and was cut down by several shotgun blasts. He died slumped against a tree which still stands outside his, his former apartment at 5239 South Michigan Avenue in Chicago. And you can Google street map that and yeah. see the tree. You, you can't tell which tree it is, but you can guess. Yeah. Uh, Roe was laid out in a $5,000 casket and received the biggest funeral of any Chicago African-American since Jack Johnson in 1946. Thousands lined the streets to catch a glimpse of Roe's 81-car funeral procession. procession. At Rose Funeral, Minister Clarence H. Cobb said he was a friend of man and he had a pure heart. Roe was known as the Robin Hood of the South Side of Chicago. He was a policy king. Okay. So that's what your your guy I think was a policy king too. So we're gonna get into what, what that is in a little bit. And 
what that even means and how okay. that became. So Roe had this Robin Hood effect on his neighborhood. So in their heyday, policy kings were the black communities, banks, and employers in Chicago. In the early part of the 20th century, segregation and economic discrimination had a devastating effect on African-American communities, like we yeah, talked about, right. through the U.S. Yep. And, in, and in Chicago and some of the other major cities in the north, uh, they had this, the policy industry. Uh, and this policy industry generated a lot of money to poor black neighborhoods. Policy kings put a lot of their earnings into legitimate businesses, such as car dealerships and churches, uh, and aside from running a smooth operation, Roe was remembered for paying hospital bills for newborns and funeral tabs for the deceased. On one occasion, an elderly woman who had hit the number uh, hit the number. So these gambling rings were the policy. Yeah, they, they're basically everybody in the neighborhood would play this lottery, and they'd okay. have people runners that would go running yeah. like this kingpin guy would take all the money, pay off everybody, and then, you know, one winner. Yeah. But then everybody else makes money off it. All these people make money. So really? the guy running the ring, it's like a gambling ring, but it's like a but lottery. He's, but he's paying off their medical bills and stuff. Yeah, and then, he, yeah, he's taking, he made a lot of money, but he's doing this in the hood because nobody else is taking care of anybody yeah. in black neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, and he was black? Yeah. He was light, very light-skinned black guy, but he looked... Pictures of him, if you look online, uh, he looks like a white guy to me. But yeah. um, on one occasion, uh, so yeah, so that elderly woman came and she had won on one of the gambling things and a uh, shady gangster uh, wouldn't give her the money. And he so Roe, uh, he and some of his boys went over to the men and persuaded them to give, him her, give her her winnings. He's also been known to walk the streets of poor black neighborhoods passing out $50 bills to needy people. So we're going to back up a little bit to see where Roe started out, how he got to this place as this kingpin of this policy got, you know, getting yeah. murdered. Um, he was born in Louisiana to an African-American sharecropper and raised in Little Rock, Arkansas. As a child, he received no formal education, and when he was of age, he did odd jobs for a tailor, and he learned how to sew. Sometime after that, he got involved in bootlegging and gained a notorious reputation as a colorful racketeer who could pass for white. Mm. His career as a bootlegger ended after a few years, and then he moved to Detroit, where he worked as an, in an automobile plant. I think that's the other thing, too. It's like, maybe if you really delve into these people and the time, you can kind of get an idea why people had it hard. I mean, yeah. no education. They didn't have access to things. Mm -hmm. And then you can, it's kind of like, it reminds me of the drug game, too. People talk about, oh, people choose to do crime instead. But when you see no nothing, no hope around you, Everyone is in the slums. No one can afford anything. It's right. a hard time. Yep. But here's this real easy way to just make a bunch of money. Like, right. It's got to be the most tempting thing in the world. Yeah. Um, so, so he worked in an automobile plant in Detroit. When he was 31 years old, he took what he learned working for the tailor in Arkansas, and he moved from Detroit to Chicago and began working for an African-American tailor named Edward P. Jones. Shortly after Roe began working for Jones, Jones decided to get involved in policy, and he made Roe his first runner. So Jones okay. Jones would he be the guy the running guy the gambling ring. Yeah. Um, well, for him, with this guy. So he's he's running the policy, and Roe is his runner, like going and getting the numbers mm -hmm. and taking people's money and then paying the winners. Under the protection of politicians Edward Joseph Kelly and Patrick Nash, 
the Kelly Nash political machine, Jones was making $2,000 a day by 1930. So the politicians were all in on this, too. Like, they knew about it. You paid them off, and they yeah. didn't do anything, you know. Um, so he was making $2,000 a day by 1930. Can you imagine what that is in 1930 money? Yeah, that's a lot. By 1938, he had increased his earnings to $10,000 a day. Oh, my God. And Roe was pulling down nice cuts from the profits. But this soon caught the attention of Al Capone and his oh, syndicate. Oh, no. And they set out to take over the numbers racket in Chicago. Uh, the Jones Row wheels were netting over $25 million annually. Holy in 1946. shit. Yeah, by 1946, th- that was happening. And but the, because of racism, I'm sure Al Capone beat yeah. him. Well, so the mob seeking to move in on the Jones brothers and Roe uh, kidnapped Ed Jones and held him for ransom. That included $100,000 and a promise to relinquish his policy business. Roe paid the hundred grand, but after Jones was released, he decided not to give up his share of the business. Yeah. However, the Jones brothers fled to Mexico, leaving the entire business to Roe. This is all according to AmericanMafia.com. Yeah. So, so Al Capone was like the Chicago ball. Like, yeah. He's like, no, yeah. but he's making money. It must have eaten into his... His business. Whatever his yeah. business were. People probably couldn't afford to do that. Well, he was that. bootlegging, I think. This was just a policy game, I think, that was... That was, but I think Al Capone was. Bootlegging. Oh, he was. Yeah, he's an okay. I mean, he ran a mafia. Yeah, I mean, it was the. They were called the Outfit, the Chicago Outfit was the name of Al Capone's mob. Okay. Um. So then, the Chicago Outfit capo, Sam Giancana, who was attempting to take over the Southside gambling operations, ordered an attempt to kidnap Roe. Now the. Now Roe's the boss. Yeah. On June 19th, 1951, Roe ended up killing one of the kidnappers, though. Fat Lenny Caifano, who was only a, uh, not only a made man, but the brother of Capo Marshal Joseph Caifano. Uh-oh. That's so, not good. Yeah, Roe kills this guy. So he's a badass yeah. black gangster. Yeah. You don't hear about these guys. Yeah, that's you know? awesome. Is there, why, is there a movie about him? Maybe there is, and I don't know oh, about Oh, there it, should be. Um, so this, I want to kind of cover this guy, and I, I want to do a black history yeah. sh- nerdy night show. Anyway, the Chicago Police Department arrested Roe and charged him with murder. The following day, Chicago police detectives Ed Lannis and Richard Barrett transported Roe to a court appearance. So they, they kept a lot of security around him to prevent the outfit from murdering him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was at the Cook County Jail, lots of guards. Uh, to prevent poisoning, Roe's meals were specially prepared outside prison walls. Roe pled self-defense, and his defense team was able to link prosecutors to the mob, causing key evidence against Roe to be thrown out. So Roe eventually beat the case. Really? Yeah, because of all that. But not before being denied bail six times and before and during the trial proceedings. Upon beating the case, Roe thumped his chest and exclaimed to reporters, they'll have to kill me to take me. <laughs> but unfortunately, after Fat Lenny's murder, Sam Giancana mastermade Giancana masterminded a month-long shakedown campaign against the black bookmakers of Chicago. Oh, of course. Dozens were shot at or blackjacked, and others simply fled the city forever. Excuse me. Meanwhile, Roe was holed up in his mansion on South Michigan Avenue. The outfit seized control of his policy wheels, and many felt that Roe had pushed his luck too far. That is... And then, of course, he was murdered. Yeah. But his widow did reveal a secret after he died. Lucky Ted had terminal cancer and had been given only months to live. So it's not that big of a... Oh, okay. 
and he was going to die anyway. Not that big of a thing. Not that big of a deal. I mean, she kind of yeah. revealed that later. We were like, you know what? It's okay. He's fine. Um, but over an FBI wiretap during the early 70s, Giancana said of Roe, I'll say this, N-word or no N-word, that bastard went out like a man. He had balls. It was a fucking shame to kill him. Ugh. Uh, that awful the way they talk and that. But but anyway, this guy, I didn't, I had no idea that there yeah. were black gang members, like black gangsters. gangsters. Like gangster, yeah. t- you know. Did you ever, were there pictures of him? Yeah. Yeah. He, I mean, he looks like, an, like I said, he looks like an old white man. Um, oh, he does? Yeah, like he looks, like the pictures of him is like... He's not real sharp dressed or anything? No, yeah, he's sharp dressed, but he's like old as hell. Yeah. Show, the pictures, anyway. Yeah. Um, but you can just Google him, and he's, yeah, he looks, he's got glasses, but there's a couple where he doesn't have a hat and you can kind of tell he might be, like he kind of, the closest African-American guy I think he looks but like But he was is in the, ho- he was in the neighborhood. Oh, yeah, he was. Oh, yeah, he was black, sure. Yeah. I mean, a, a white guy wouldn't do this, right. give the money to black people. Um, but he looked kind of like like that guy who played Gus Fring on Breaking Bad. Yeah, like that kind of yeah. complexion, sort of like. But he looked. I mean, the black and white picture, so maybe he was darker when you saw him. But but like I said, he had to pass for white to get into racketeering in the beginning. Right. So he, you know, that his white whiter skin helped him uh, get into it, I guess. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. But anyway, that was interesting. I never heard of him. Yeah, that's um, pretty cool. I like that story. And then another cool black eye news. Wednesday, August 6th, mm-hmm. 1952, Satchel Paige. You know who that is? A musician. No. <laughs> no, sports. Sports. Yeah, yeah, he's a pitcher. Okay. He's like the most, one of the most famous pitchers of all time. Okay. But he's a, uh, an African-American pitcher. Okay. He was 47 years old and became the oldest pitcher to win a complete shutout. Cool. So I looked it up, and he was 47. Most people retire like like if you're playing at 42, it's amazing. He played until he's 59. Whoa! Yes, Satchel Paige's quote was: "Age is a case of mind over matter. If you don't mind, it don't matter." I don't, cool? I don't. I don't get it. Age is a case of mind over matter. Right. If you don't mind, it don't matter. He's not minding his age; it doesn't matter to him. Oh, okay. If he was minding it, then he would get old and be frail but he it's like mind over matter with the hypnotism stuff like putting a candle over here goes right back to that anyway satchel page cool i he played till he was 59 59 that's yeah that's old you ever seen a 59 year old that could do anything but i bet he was still whizzing them fastballs um and then monday (laughs) august 18th we got our first birthday cue the music matt truman Patrick Swayze was born on Monday, August 18th, 1952. Okay. Can you believe Patrick Swayze's as old as your mom? He's dead, isn't he? Well, he's dead now, but he would be as old as your mom. He's still alive. But, like, you lusted after somebody the same age as your mom. I never lusted after Patrick Swayze. You have, like, four Patrick Swayze shirts with him riding a horse. I did lust after. There were people I lusted after that were older than my mom. Whoa, weird. Satchel Paige? No, like, Bo Duke... And he's like not older than your mom, what he's probably my mom's age. Well, Bo Duke was pretty cool. Um, Harrison Ford. <laughs> I wanted to be John Travolta. Bach. She's. Not, oh, yeah, I was like seven, and I was like, "Oh, John Travolta's the cutest ever." Well, that's a lot of people were because he was playing a teenager. 
Oh, my God. Anyway, Patrick Swayze, do you want to know? So I looked up the Google, the top questions about Patrick Swayze. Yeah. And the first one was, what were Patrick Swayze's last words? And his last words were, I love you, which he said to his wife, Lisa Niemi, who who never left his side. Aww. And he got married to her like in the 80s and never wow. and stayed married to her the whole time. That's like us. It is, but like for somebody to get his stardom and stay yeah, married that's to his true. That's wife before yeah. all that. But so I looked up pictures of him. She's real, she's real kind of plain. Yeah. So, I this sucks that the society's making making me th- jump to this conclusion. But I'm like, oh, maybe he was gay. Because Joe, he was a ballet, you know. Yeah. Or maybe cheated here, on her all the time. Or maybe maybe he just loved her. Maybe he just loved her. And was a good person. That's usually not the <laughs> it case. Just, it just never happens. Like no, it doesn't. Everyone just is always shallow. an asshole. Yeah. So, and he's such a good dancer. Like, what straight guy is that good of a dancer? Now you're being very stereotypical. Just me. All right. Gregory Hines was a good dancer. That's true. Wasn't he gay? Uh, Mikhail Baryshnikov, I don't think, was gay. Everybody was gay. Everybody's gay. All right. The other question <laughs> was: Was Patrick Swayze a good guy? And after he turned his life around, the actor many called Hollywood's nicest guy was named People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive. He and Naomi bought themselves a five-acre spread north of L.A. at the foot of the L.A. National Forest, named it Rancho Bizarro, and populated with Arabian horses, dogs, and peacocks. And then the only other thing I had is there was this time in, in, yeah, he got married to her, he was always in love with her or whatever, but... uh. He he was really, he said he always felt there was something different in there for his personality. I was scared to look for fear I wouldn't find anything. So he got into Buddhism, EST training. He went into Scientology, Transcendental Meditation and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he was an FAA licensed pilot uh, with an instrument rating, whatever that means. But he, I don't know if you remember this, but he made the news on June 1st, 2000. While flying with his dogs in his twin engine, Cessna, a bunch of numbers, I don't know what this is, <laughs> from Van Nuys, California to Las Vegas, New Mexico, his, wait, Las Vegas, New Mexico, isn't Las Vegas in Nevada? Maybe there's another Las Vegas. Anyway, his plane developed a pressurized problem, causing yeah. Swayze to make a precautionary landing on a dirt road in a housing complex in Prescott Valley, Arizona. The plane's right wing struck a light pole, but Swayze was unharmed. According to the police report, like, what if Patrick Swayze just crashed on your road? <laughs> According to a police report, witnesses said that Swayze appeared to be extremely intoxicated and asked for help to remove evidence from the crash site, an open bottle of wine and a 30-pack of beer. He made himself unavailable to police for several hours. But it was later determined that the alcohol in question was not in the cabin but stored in external storage compartments, inaccessible in flight. And the probable cause of the accident was Swayze's physical impairment due to the cumulative effects of carbon monoxide from engine exhaust byproducts and carbon monoxide from heavy tobacco use. Apparently he was smoking a ton of cigarettes. While he was flying a plane? And the loss of an undetermined amount of cabin pressurization resulting in hypoxia. Hypoxia. Oh, my. So I guess he... brain damage. I guess, yeah, I was thinking he was just drunk flying a plane, but it looks like it was... Like he's, all yeah, that shit. So he's bit. fucked up. I wonder if that caused because he died of uh, pancreatic cancer. I wonder if anything that had anything to do with it. But and that yeah. same day, I mean, his same birthday. He was what did I say, August eighteenth, something like that. There's another birthday. It's a double. Hey.
That's who I look like. Now I've grown my hair out. I look just like Elaine Boozler. That's what I tell people. Yeah. She was born in Brooklyn, New York, born into a Jewish immigrant family and raised in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn. She was the youngest child and only daughter of her father, a Russian acrobat, and her mother, a Romanian ballerina. What's her? What was her real Elaine name? Elaine Boozler. That's not her real name. No, I, I didn't see a fake name in there, but... Really? Yeah. I can't imagine her last name is Boozler. I think that's, Elaine Boozler, baby. That's got to be a stage name. I've always thought of Elaine Boozler as just this like kitsch reference 80s comedian, but she's like an animal activist and stuff. She seems like a cool person. So I'm going to go back and listen to some of my old Elaine Boozler records later. See, and then I got one yeah. more thing, and it's a one more birthday, but I think it's a birthday you'll like. Okay. Last I'm, time, Matt I'm Truman. Here for it. Matt Truman's here in studio live. Kick it, Matt Truman. Kick <laughs> it. Kick it. Kick it. Well, you one time kick it. Well, you one time kick it, man. Amy, Amy hates birthday. Amy hates birthday. August, Wednesday, August 27th, 1952. <laughs> born Paul Rubenfeld in Peekskill, New York. Growing up in Sarasota, Florida, where his parents, Judy and Milton Rubenfeld, owned a lamp store. His mother was a teacher. His father was an automobile salesperson who had flown for Britain's Royal Air Force and for the U.S. Army Air Forces in World War II. Later became one of the founding pilots of the Israeli Air Force during the 1948 Paul Rubin? Yeah, Rubin's. Yeah, Paul Rubin, Pee Wee Herman. Okay. He's got two younger siblings, Luke, who was a dog trainer, and Abby, who was an attorney and board member of the ACLU of Tennessee. Can you imagine this? Lawyer yeah. and board member of Yeah, Pee Wee Herman. Yes, Pee Wee Herman's my brother. Right. Yes. Yes. The dog trainer. Hey, our dog trainer is Pee Wee Herman's brother. Somebody's, I wonder how much he looks that. like him. They probably both look exactly alike. I bet like they him. look alike. Yeah. It'd be funny if they did. Well, he spent a significant amount of his childhood in Oneonta, New York. Mm-hmm. As a child, he frequented the Ringley Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, whose winter headquarters was in Sarasota. The circus atmosphere sparked Ruben's interest in entertainment. And influenced his later work, according to Vanity Fair and the St. Petersburg Times. You can tell that. Yeah, you can, you can tell. tell that the circus, circus guy. Yeah. Inspiration. Well, Big Top Pee Wee. He came out. Well, then. the whole thing is so yeah, circusy. He's very circusy. Paul Rubens also loved to watch reruns of I Love Lucy, which made him want to make people laugh. At age five, he asked his father to build him a stage where he and his siblings would put on plays, according to SFist. Oh, I love that. Isn't that kind of cute? Yes, it is. But doesn't it make you kind of think that after the dad built that stage, he must have spent a lot of time masturbating in it, in that theater, that little theater he built? Because in 1991, let's not forget. Why would... <laughs> he was arrested in Sarasota, Florida for masturbating during a film at an adult movie theater. Right. Remember that? Poor Pee Wee. He had to, like, go Why away. Why are you bringing that up? <laughs> well, you can't not. I mean, that's... he. Kink shaming, isn't it? Is it kink shaming? I is think. that a thing? Well, you know what? I've been thinking about this. The, the truth is, he's probably gay, and he, you can't. Then you couldn't. Well, maybe you could. I don't know what it was like in nineties, but it was not accepted. So no. people had to keep it closeted and do, I guess, and do things like this. So, but I always also wondered about. It. I never really paid attention. I just heard it, but I didn't. So they like ruined his whole career. Well, and what they did is shitty. Like, listen, to what they really did. Shitty. So. 
So during a random police inspection, a detective who had observed Rubens detained him as he was ready to leave. So he didn't stop him while he was doing it. He waited until he was done. The thing was over, and he comes out. And this sweep also resulted in three other arrests. Uh, so my question is, what, what's the point of sweeping an adult porn theater? Yeah. Like you know what the people there are doing. Are doing. Everybody there is doing that. Everybody knows that. Why else is there an adult porn theater? That's always blown my mind, too. It's like, why, why open an adult porn theater? Uh, like, I'm going to do this. And yeah, we'll make a lot of I money. I don't think they have them anymore, do they? I don't know. They did. Through my high school, there was one in Toledo, and I had buddies that went there once, and they told us a uh, story uh-huh. about all the weirdos. But it's like, that's what you do there. Like, why would you so open they, it? there's, like, people jacking off yes, in there? Yes, I think so. I don't they know. They told you that? They I saw can't. Them? I think so. I can't remember. Oh, my God. But the thing is, like, you're like, I yeah, mean, I guess yeah I'm going to make do. bank. People will come to this. But you're going to clean up jizz. Like, Ugh. it's going to ha- So my thing is, like, everybody knows. So is it just an easy arrest or something for police? Is that what it is? Like, police are like, hey, we need three more to our quota. Yeah, We'll just raid that adult porn theater and arrest these guys. I guess I, mean, I don't it get it. I don't understand police work when it comes to this. But so when detectives examined his driver's license when they arrested him, Ruben told them, I'm Pee Wee Herman, and they offered to do a children's benefit for the sheriff's office to take care of this, according to the Victoria Advocate. <laughs> uh, the next day after a local reporter recognized Ruben's name, Ruben's attorney made the same offer to the Sarasota Herald Tribune in exchange for withholding the story. Of course, we all know we all know how what right. happened there. Yeah, sorry, beer. You having issues? But you na- having tissues? But, you know, in 1971, Rubens had been arrested in the same county for loitering and prowling near an adult theater. So it was a thing he must have just done for a while. Though charges were dropped. His second arrest was in 1983. He was prowling and what? What was the other prowling word? Prowling and loitering. Loitering Near an adult theater. Prowling. He was just hanging out in a porn theater. Those are both some real, like... Connotative. What are you doing out here? Prowling? No, I'm just loitering. Prowling and loitering. He's prowling and loitering. Just sounds like you're up to no good. Is prowling, isn't that a prowler? Isn't that somebody who breaks in? Yeah, I would think. Well, his second arrest was in 1983 when he was placed on two years probation for possession of marijuana. Oh, God. Although adjudication was withheld. So, So yeah, so, you know, that was stupid. He should have been. But the biggest and best thing about Pee Wee, besides his awesome fame and everything else that I discovered looking him up, is that in the seventies? You know, he was in. Yeah. He he uh, performed at local comedy clubs, and he was part of uh, the Groundlings in L.A. But he he was on the Gong Show a bunch of times. He was on the oh. gong, he was on the Gong Show like fourteen times. No bef- kidding. Before he was Pee Wee Herman. So I just posted on Facebook uh, one of the videos of him and this other guy, and it's. It's so dumb. It's so ridiculous. Like he's got long I, hair. It's I wonder if I would remember him. No, you. I don't think you would. At least from I this watched video. the Gong Show religiously. You did? Yes, I loved well, it. I was looking through YouTube of J- the Gong Show. J.P. Morgan or whatever. No. J.P. What's her name? I don't know, but it's not J.P. Morgan Chase. No. The I one got with stu- the beret. Oh, I can't. J.P. Morgan, I think, is her name. But I got stuck on it. You know, you can look a lot of that stuff up on YouTube. Yeah. And there was one called the Popsicle Twins. Have you ever heard of this? No. It's just two girls wearing, like, tank tops and shorts and no shoes or socks or anything. They both have these big, big orange popsicles. And they're, like, 
like deep throating them and sh- like licking this sh- like it's a shat like on and, YouTube. Yeah, and, but it was on the Gong Show and people. It was all, on the Gong Show. It was on the Gong Show, and they got she, they ended up getting gonged. All they did was like deep treat, throat a popsicle. They treat these popsicles like they're penises. Like they're like one of them was just like slowly, and the other one was like almost deep throat, like doing the shaft thing. And people are yelling like, "Yeah, suck it, yeah, put it yeah, in your mouth." Yeah. Wow. Yes, people from the seventies were like yelling this stuff. And I was like, "People from the 70s. Well, I was like, "How is this on TV? Why is this okay?" The Gong Show, I think, it was on regular. It time, was. Right? I watched it all the time. Gene, Gene, the dancing machine. So look up the popsicle twins on and the, the Gong unknown, Show, everybody. The unknown comic. That was people. They're wearing white suits with black vests and top hats and long Madam. hair. Madam was Madam one of the, was one of one the, of the judges. Yeah. Um, Love that. But if you ever wonder if Pee Wee was gay, like, oh yeah, definitely. I mean, that's like that. That might be one of the gayest things I've ever seen. But it's awesome. Um, of course, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's awesome. awesome. It is awesome. Gay is awesome. Right. Gay people are awesome. Gay, everything is awesome. Um, so shout out to all our gay friends. We love you. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. It's Pride. Yay. Woo. Okay. Uh, so anyway, that's all, all right. the time we have. We got nothing else left. We got to let Dale through. Get out of here, Chuck Berry. We love you guys. Truman Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time by their music.